Good morning as well. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Yes. Uh, in honor of Super Bowl Sunday, I am joined up here by a guy that I respect a ton. Um, not only for what we're going to get into in a moment, but just for who you are. And so I'm so glad you're here. This is George Andrews, part of Calvary Church. Good morning, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. So George was an academic and athletic All-American his senior year at the University of Nebraska. Go Big Red. Go Big Red. Okay. <laughs> and in 1979, he was drafted in the first round by the Los Angeles Rams. And in your, yeah, we have, uh, they may be coming back. Who knows? But uh, know. we'll see. But, uh, <laughs> and then in the first round draft pick, in your rookie season, you happened to play in the 14th Super Bowl. That was in January of 1980 against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Correct. To this day, it's uh, the record for most people ever to watch a Super Bowl live. There's 103,000 people in the Rose Bowl to watch you play in that Super Bowl. What do you remember from that day? (laughs) Well, first of all, I had to think back. It's been a while. (laughs) But, you know, there was two or three things that stood out. And uh, I think first, just the awe that I had for being in that place with players that I had watched growing up on TV my whole life, people that you wouldn't recognize, but... Maybe like Terry Bradshaw, who was the Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback, and Vince Ferragamo, our quarterback. Uh, to, to be there with them and the, the other guys was amazing. I, I remember how tough a game it was. We, we actually were leading going into the fourth quarter, 19-14. Uh, to 14, yes. And Terry Bradshaw threw two long passes that... Uh, they uh, ended up winning 31 to 19. I wasn't going to bring that up. That's but. okay. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> then finally, you know, I, I was a believer at the time, and there was just a sense of, is that all there is? Because sometimes in life we have these goals that we think, if I can just accomplish that, you know, that I'm going to feel a certain way. And it really was a, a sense of, is, is that really what it, so God yeah. was working in my heart. Yeah, yeah, and in light of that, uh, you go to the Super Bowl your rookie season. You play several more seasons. One of your nicknames, I looked this up, was you were the white Lawrence Taylor. So you know that name. That's really cool. Okay. Uh, you well, that's also, very much uh, a compliment. Yeah, you were also, this is more your University of Nebraska days, you were telling me, but you were called the Smiling Assassin. Which yes, I think that's so cool. Football has the best nicknames. I mean, pastors don't get nicknames. but Well, uh, I had yeah. a guy that played with me that was called Hacksaw Reynolds, and he literally did saw a Jeep in half in college. <laughs> yes, so. I remember hearing this. Yeah. Uh, what were some of the highs and the lows of being a professional athlete? Um, you know, really one of the highs was being able to start at linebacker in my second year. It's a team game, but to work hard and, and finally get there was was really a special time. Yeah. Uh, the, the lows would, would revolve around injury. I had two uh, knee injuries my sixth and seventh years that ended my career, so that was obviously a bummer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and... You said you were a believer going yes. into the National Football League. What was it like being a Christian and an athlete? Okay. I had come to Christ my freshman year at the University of Nebraska. I roomed with a quarterback that was on scholarship from Big Springs, Texas, who called himself a born-again Christian. And that was new to me. Huh. Uh, but through his witness that year and in, uh, just watching him in word and deed, I, I gave my life to Christ my, my second semester of my freshman year. Got involved with campus ministries and began to grow. Um, so playing football as a Christian, 
you really realize that you need a small group of committed believers around you because it's a very tough environment. Yeah. You, you need the fellowship, the support, and we were, we were close. Yeah, yeah. And then that even leads into post-football life and what that looked like, becoming a husband, father to three wonderful kids, and then a businessman. How did your faith allow you that tra- to transition from professional athletics? Um, I don't think you realize until something's taken away from you, and whatever that might be, we all have different things, but I played football from the time I was eight years old until I was 30, Mm -hmm. and so my identity had gotten into football, but I I really had a difficult time. The first couple days, I found myself crying. I couldn't, why? I mean, but when when something's over like that, but it it didn't take long that the teaching I had received, my my identity, just like yours, is in the Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And the the football, the other stuff is all secondary to a true identity in him, and that kicked in. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was, I really learned a good lesson. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And then... What do you think is going to happen today? Let's talk about Super Bowl, whatever, just 30 or whatever. Put me on the spot. Yeah. Um, you know, being good friends with the Slaters, I definitely am going to root that Matthew gets his first Super Bowl win yes. today and yes. that the New England Patriots win. That said, um, how could you not want to root for Russell Wilson? Yeah. What, what a tremendous young man and Christian yeah. brother, and I hope he plays well. Yeah. I just hope it's a better game than last year, though. That was awful. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then thinking of the game, several of us probably have plans for today. Uh, I would love for you, and just kind of even with your background of being a professional athlete and, and now speaking to us, would you just pray for each sure. of us? We're going to be in places today. Maybe we're surrounded by non-Christians. Maybe we're the only believer there. Maybe we have a tough choice to make right. in how we're going to live today. Would you just pray that we could be salt and light in all yeah. the places we end up watching today's game? So would you pray? Would you bow with me, please? Father, we just uh, thank you for this opportunity to be salt and light today. I first want to pray for those believers on both of the teams that are going out there and and wanting to glorify you with all the gifts that you have given them. Give them just a special grace today and protect them from injury. But we pray for ourselves if we go to different parties or if we're even uh, watching the game. That to those around us, we will be an example that you will keep us from temptation um, and just may we be a light among those who are possibly worshiping football. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I appreciate you. Thank you. Grab your Bibles. There's a Bible provided for you in the seat rack in your chair, so you can use that if you don't have a Bible or open your device, whatever works here today. And turn to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then you hit the great book of Judges. And today we're going to sit in Judges chapter 4 and a little bit of 5 as we talk about overcoming sin through the unlikeliest of heroes. And as you turn there, just a little background to what Judges 4 is all about, is that the setting is in northern Israel pretty close to the Sea of Galilee. You may recognize that term, Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus uh, existed in his earthly ministry. So the setting here in northern Israel is not far from there. The time is about 1220 
B.C., about 1,200 years before Jesus enters our world that we read about here in Judges 4. The nation of Israel is enjoying 80 years of peace. And then, as we'll read in a minute, the judge Ehud, remember the left-handed man we talked about last week? He dies. And Judges 4, verses 1 and 2, pick up right after he dies, and it gives us some sobering news. So look at Judges 4, 1 and 2. It says, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. And stop right there. We see here in the beginning verses that there's bad news for the nation of Israel. That turning away from God has consequences. Uh, You can stay here in Judges 4, but if you want later, you can look back to Judges chapter 1, which we covered a few weeks ago. And we read in Judges 1 that through God's hand of providence, His plan, He delivers the Israelites from the hand of the original King Jabin and the Canaanites. He does that in chapter 1. But we also read in chapter 1 that Israel doesn't drive out the Canaanites completely from the land. In Judges chapter 2, verse 3, we read that God gives them a warning for not driving out the Canaanites completely. In Judges 2, verse 3, it says, Therefore, God speaking, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. And there's this question of why was God so intent on driving other nations outside of this land that he had given Israel? Why was he so focused in on this? And I think there's a couple of reasons. One is we see that God had promised the land to the Israelites through covenant. If you want to use like the metaphor of a marriage, God had said marriage vows to the nation of Israel. He had said, this is what I commit to do. I will give you this land. And so when he began to see Israel, picture him being his wife, wander from him, stray from him, enter into adulterous relationships with other false gods, God rose up. God rose up to protect his bride, the nation that he had entered into with covenant. He said, I'm not just going to stand by and let this happen. I am going to step in. And so he allowed the nation of Israel not only to be his chosen people just by his grace, but also to be his arm of justice. God used the nation of Israel to be his instrument of justice to drive out other nations so that they wouldn't be tempted to enter into relationships with false gods. Now, if you have the premise here this morning that the God of the Bible is one of just many gods, then the God of the Bible seems very arrogant and jealous and crazy that he would just do everything he can to to drive out by force other nations. But if you look at the word of God here in the scriptures and you believe, as I do, that the God described here is the one and only true God, then it makes sense that he would rise up and say, no, I will not allow any other worship to take place than the worship that rightfully belongs to me as the one and only true God. And so this is God's relationship with Israel as he uses them to drive out other nations. 
because he knew that if he allowed other nations to just kind of hang out here in this land of covenant, that Israel would be tempted and they would wander and they would stray. They would start simply with business relationships, just making some trades, and, and then it would lead to, to intermarrying, and, and then eventually it would lead to people from Israel walking away from God. And this is exactly what happens. In Judges chapter 1, and then you fast forward to Judges 4, it's about 160 years. And in this 160 years, there's this slow drift as Israel wanders away from God and turns towards the idols of the nearby Canaanites. John Calvin, originally born in France, the 16th century reformer, he says this so well when he says, this is just kind of how we're wired it's with our sin nature. That man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Can you relate to this? We either are fully devoted to worshiping the one true God, or, like Israel, we find ourselves beginning a drift away from God and wandering towards idol worship, worship of something that's not of God. George even just prayed this, and it really, that just hit me as you prayed this. God, pray for those who football is their idol, is their form of worship when it comes to a Sunday experience. Ultimately, anything that we find our worship in other than God will leave us wanting, will not lead to satisfaction. And I can say that from my own life. I've seen it in my life. Nothing other than the true worship of God will satisfy us, will give us peace, will give us joy that goes beyond just whatever the good thing is in front of us. And so the Israelites drifted away from God, and this led, after the judge Ehud died, to an entire, entire generation just gone from God. And the result of that is bad news because turning away from God has consequences. So the Canaanites rise up into power here in Judges chapter 4. You see this in the first two verses. And it's crazy power. It's oppressive power. In Judges chapter 5, which is a poetic commentary of Judges 4, we read that the Israelites in this age of Canaanite oppression here in chapter 4 are scared to even walk down the streets. Their village and community life disperses because it's now dangerous for families to gather together to live in community because they risk being attacked by the Canaanites. And so they're scattered, they're isolated, they're alone. Particularly, and this is key for what we're going to read next, women in this time lived a very scary life as there were thousands of Israelite women who were kidnapped and now human trafficked in this Canaanite culture as they became sexual slaves. Judges 5 also tells us during this reign that the nation of Israel despised the day they were born. They didn't want to be alive. This is the culture they were living in as Judges 4 opens up. Super Bowl Sunday, welcome. <laughs> it's bad news, but there's good news. As we always see in scriptures, bad news, and then we look to God for good news. For the good news is this, is that God repeatedly hears our cries of repentance and brings us to forgiveness and freedom. Look at Judges 4, verse 3. 
says, the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots. This is talking about Sisera, the general of the Canaanite army. And he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. We kind of glance over that, but this, this is brutal, brutal reign of this general. Verse 3 begins, the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. We see throughout the scriptures here in Judges that the Israelites repeatedly cry out to God. We're only four chapters into this book and already we're at the fourth point in this book where the Israelites are far from God and they cry out to God in desperation. Please, God, save us. We've gone way farther than we ever thought we would go with sin and now we're stuck. We're in misery. We don't even want to be alive. God, do something. And you see here in Judges chapter 2, twice in Judges 3, and now here in Judges 4, God hears their cries. This is our God. He hears us when we call to Him. Often in my life, and if you're like me in your life, there's things that prevent us from crying out to God when we're stuck in sin. Even when we're miserable, there's things that stop us from crying out to God. One thing is this, is we listen to the lie that God doesn't see our sin, that God doesn't notice our sin. I don't know if you've ever played hide-and-seek with like a three- or four-year-old preschooler, but it's amazing. We have one in our home right now. It's amazing when you play hide-and-seek with a little three- or four-year-old how they think they are covered when they play. I don't know if you've ever like counted to ten and you say ten and you look around and there is a little three or four year old, it's about five feet from you, just under a blanket like this. And they think that they're completely covered, right, in that moment. And so you kind of play around and you go, where are you? I can't see you. But literally, they're right there. This is us when it comes to buying this lie that, oh, God doesn't see my sin. You know, he's too busy doing other things. We're like a three or four-year-old literally laying under a blanket, a rug, thinking that we're completely hidden. But God sees us. The scriptures are clear about that. Psalm 139, where can I flee from your presence? God, there's nowhere I can go that you are not already there and you see what's happening. And so one of the reasons we don't confess or repent is because we think God's overlooked it, but he hasn't. The other reason is this. Sometimes we're aware that God sees our sin, but we're so ashamed and stuck in this, the darkness and grossness of our sin that we think that God would never receive us back, that he would never hear us in the midst of our darkness. And so we buy into that lie that God's weary of us. He's given up on us. He's, he's over us. Those are the two lies that at least I struggle with, that I deal with. But then here's the truth. God sees your sin, but he delivers you by his mercy and grace when you repent of your sin and you turn to him. We're in the fourth occasion of Israel having to cry out to God. There's three more coming in this book. So seven times in this book, there's this cycle of sin. Where Israel falls on their face, they're stuck, they're miserable, they're being oppressed in brutal ways. They cry out to God, and guess what? God hears them. God listens to them. God responds to their cry of repentance. It's 
awesome. We're here this morning to gather together to remind ourselves of this truth. Because throughout the week, there's a lot of other messages that we're hearing. And so we gather together as followers of Jesus Christ and some seekers, which I'm so glad you're here if you're a seeker. We're here to point to this truth that this is the God, the one true God, and this is what he does. He hears us. He responds to us. I love this quote. This is from the grandson of Billy Graham. He says, nothing is easier to do than sin. Amen. (laughs) But nothing is harder to believe than that God loves and forgives sinners. That's true too. I wish it was easier at times. We'd run much quicker. And yet this is true that God does do this. And so I want right off the bat for Judges 4 to remind us of this. That we have a God who hears us. We have a God who delivers us. We have a God who forgives us and cleanses us. It's incredible. And often in his plan of deliverance, he uses really unlikely people. One thing, just even in the context of today, in Super Bowl, I don't I think it was 2008, this is David Tyree making one of the most famous catches in the history of football. It was against the New England Patriots, times running down, Eli Manning, the quarterback, just heaves up a desperation pass, and David Tyree catches this with his helmet, basically, as you can see. Comes down with the catch, and then they go on to score the winning touchdown, and The Giants beat the Patriots, 2008 Super Bowl. I don't know if you know about David Tyree, but before this catch in the Super Bowl, he had only caught 18 passes his entire professional career. And that particular season, he had only caught four passes. So this was pass number five of the entire season. And this is the last catch he ever made as a professional athlete. Isn't that amazing? I mean, talk about an unlikely character in the Super Bowl. George mentioned uh, Matthew Slater. We're praying that today he is the unlikely hero of the Super Bowl. If you're a Christian, at least you're praying for this. Um, (laughs) In Judges 4, God uses three unlikely heroes to deliver his people from the realm of oppression of the Canaanites. And the first one he uses is Deborah. And she's called in Judges chapter 5, the mother of Israel. Deborah is, I don't know if you've heard this before, but the only female judge listed in the book of Judges. Which for this reason alone just makes her a significant hero, hero of the scriptures. Her name means bee, like honeybee. And as the mother of Israel, Deborah's leadership was sweet to the nation of Israel But to Israel's enemies, Deborah's leadership stunned like a bee. Her name was really appropriate. The people of Israel during this time were called to go to the tabernacle to have their disputes resolved and settled. Their questions about their faith were to be presented at the tabernacle to the priests. But during this time of 160 years of backsliding of the nation of Israel... The priests in the tabernacle at Shiloh had become corrupt. There was a couple of reasons for this, and they were a little complex. One was the nation as a whole had stopped making sacrifices, had stopped giving tithes 
to the tabernacle. And so therefore, the priests no longer had money, possessions, material things to be able to live. And so they began to seek after rich patrons who would supply their needs. But then this relationship turned to corruption as the richest people in the area and region would now have the ear and the leadership of the priesthood. And so the Levitical priests of this time were corrupt. The people, the nation of Israel, could no longer go to them and receive the wisdom and counsel that they needed. It was a really sad time for the nation, so many ways. And yet God, in his mercy and grace, looks at that corruption and says, I will choose another. And he raises up this woman named Deborah. And the Israelites are desperately looking for someone to lead them. And Deborah becomes the person. God raises her up under a palm tree to do this. Look at Judges 4.4. says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidadeth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abibianom, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hands." Do you see the authority that Deborah speaks at this point as both a prophet and a judge of the people? She's led and inspired by the Holy Spirit. She's not the only woman leader in the Bible. In fact, we have a handout in your bulletin that you received when you came in today. And I encourage you, this would be a great further study beyond this morning, is to look at some of the other leaders that God raised up that were women and to see even God's heart of how he views women in ministry. I would love for you to look at that and study that and then shoot me or even Dave an email if you have thoughts or questions or want to dialogue about some of this stuff. There's really good things in here. So Deborah's not the only woman to lead in Scripture, but I would argue that she leads in the most difficult time in the history of the world to ever be a woman. For being a female in this culture at this time in history was terrible. You are open to being victimized, and particularly in this reign of the Canaanites, to be kidnapped, to be trafficked. You were looked down upon. It was a brutal time, not only to be an Israelite, but to be a woman Israelite. And so there's an incredible twist to the story that God raises up this woman, Deborah, to go against the oppressors of women, these Canaanites. And then Deborah calls, inspired by the Lord, she calls on this man named Barak. And Barak is what we call the overmatched general. Deborah tells him to lead 10,000 troops up to Mount Tabor. And Mount Tabor, we know, is about maybe 1,800 feet in elevation. There's trees and shrubs that surround it. On top of the mountain, there's like this natural one-mile amphitheater, kind of curved in space, like the moon in a sense. And so Barak is called by Deborah to assemble 10,000 men up there and to prepare for battle. But then in what would be a military suicide, 
she then calls him then to run down the hill to attack the Canaanites and this powerful general Sisera down by the river. It doesn't make any sense that this would be the mission. And on top of that, Sisera has 900 chariots. The Canaanites, via the Philistines, were the only ones in this region who were able to make iron at this point. And so they developed 900 iron chariots. They'd have two people in the chariots. One would be like the gunner, one would be the driver, and these guys were invincible. It'd be like having an army tank today and you going up against it with like a horse. Like You're not going to win, even with 10,000 of them. So Brock's here, this overmatched general on top of the mountain. Deborah says, I will go with you. God will be with you. And then watch what happens. Look at verse 8. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be with yours on the journey that you're about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up and with him. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites, from the son of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaniman, which is near Kadesh. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abimanam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera, verse 13, called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people were with him from the Harash Hagahim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, her marching orders, Arise, for this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, and the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And look at verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagahim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one of them was left. So this is an incredible upset as the 900 iron chariots are defeated. The scripture here tells us that they were routed. In chapter 5, it gives us a little bit more details of this. It says that as the 10,000 men, the Israelite men, ran down the mountain, God allowed a flash flood to take place. And this flash flood caused mud to come up and bubble up around this valley. And so the iron chariots were stuck in the mud. And then the river swelled and it, and it overtook the valley. And in this era, no one knew how to swim. And so this became a death trap for the Canaanite army. And so God, through supernatural, using natural methods, defeats the Canaanites. There's this incredible victory for Israel. And it says back here in verse 9 that Deborah will raise up an army, and that Sisera will be handed into the hands of a woman. And naturally, as you're reading this story, you think, well, that means Deborah. Deborah is going to be the one that has the ultimate victory here. But there's a third unlikely hero in this story, 
And we read about her in verse 17. Read with me. It says, Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenanite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenanite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and she covered him. He said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here? That you shall say, No. And then look at verse 21. This is where this story moves from being a PG-13 story to rated R in one heartbeat. Look at this. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. And oh, by the way, thanks for telling us, he died. Verse 22, And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. And so God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, from the sons of Israel. And the hands of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Wow. In this culture, women were in charge of setting up the tents. And for Bedouins, shepherds, they were constantly uprooting their tents and moving along with their sheep. And so Jael was pretty skilled with a hammer and a tent peg, as you can read. And here she invites Sisera in from the Canaanite army, this brutal oppressor of people, particularly of women. Later, again, in chapter 5, it quotes Sisera's mom saying, I can't wait for my son to come home, and I can't wait to see what type of sex slaves he brings home. Talk about like a messed up family. So Sisera enters into Jael's tent. She offers him cover. He falls asleep, and then she murders him. Talk about a brutal way to end a brutal reign of impression. But let's be clear, Jael is not a hero because she murdered somebody. Last night I was like, I want to show you guys, like, in visual illustration. This looked really big when I bought it at Home Depot. It's small, probably from your chair, but a little peg hammer. I bought this last night at 9 o'clock. I'm like, I just want to, I need that illustration here. Bought this, just these two items from Home Depot last night. I walk up to the lady at the counter. I go, hey, just let you know I'm not a murderer. (laughs) It's like, okay. Okay. But Jael is not a hero because she murdered somebody. She's an unlikely hero because she was the one who ultimately kind of put the final blow in setting the Israelites free from the oppression of the Canaanites. I believe this was a self-motivated move by her. She was just looking for self-protection for her and her family. She knew that Sisera had lost. And so if she kills him, maybe she can endure herself to the next people that take over. And so it's a self-preservation move, and yet God uses this Bedouin woman to end the terror of the Canaanites who had terrorized women. 
It's pretty interesting and ironic to think through. So we have these three unlikely heroes. We have Deborah, we have Barak, and we have Jael. They point us to the ultimate unlikely hero. The one who would come 1,200 years later. The one who, as Isaiah 53 says, had nothing in him that would draw us to him, that would attract us to him. And the ultimate unlikely hero, as we know, is Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chasing of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. That's good news. It's ironic to me that the terror of Sisera ended under a rug. As he's laying there asleep, and Jael kills him, ends the rain. Well, you guys get the picture. <laughs> Here we are, we live a lot of our lives thinking we can hide our sin, hiding like Sisera under a rug. And yet we don't have to. We can come clean with God, knowing that he already sees us and that he's willing to forgive us because of what Jesus has done. Think about this. Jael pierces Sisera to deliver Israel temporarily. God pierces Jesus to deliver all who believe by faith permanently. Do you agree with that? Amen. It's incredible. Theologian Mislav Wolf says it this way. God broke the vicious cycle of violence by absorbing it himself. You see, no longer are we the arm of justice No longer are we called, like the Israelites were in the book of Judges, to drive out our enemies, to protect the worship of God. Instead, Jesus even gives us the ethic of love your enemies. Lay down your life for your enemies. Why? Because something in in history has happened that's really significant. Is that Jesus entered our world and broke the vicious cycle of violence and having to fall on our face and come back again and fall on our face and come back again. Jesus absorbed it. And so each of us, by faith, run to him when we seek forgiveness, restoration, deliverance. This is why we're here. This is what we're to remind ourselves about. So maybe you're like Deborah, filled with the Spirit, a leader, walking with God. You need Jesus today. May your prayer be, God, use me however you want. God, show me places in my life that I still need to surrender to you. You are the God that overwhelms sin in my life. Maybe you're like Barak, the overwhelmed general, who, uh, there's no way this plan will work. I have 10,000 guys, but they have 900 chariots. I'm going to lose. Maybe you're at a place in your life where you feel like your life is just heading for disaster. You don't know what's around the next turn. Life is chaotic right now. You need Jesus. May Jesus be the one who you gleefully and wonderfully surrender your life to, 
who you say, God, use me however you want. I surrender to you. I believe that you are the God who overcomes sin. Maybe you in some weird way relate to jail. You're on the outskirt of the battle. God would never, ever, ever, ever use you. And yet you need Jesus. May you make this your prayer today. God, I surrender to you. Use me however you'd like. I believe that you are the God that overcomes sin. Wherever you're at, God knows. He meets us there. Let's pray. Father, this is who you are. We've just gotten a glimpse of it this morning. Thank you that you use crazy, chaotic situations in life and history to point us towards the ultimate truth that you have overcome sin. God, may you grow our faith to really believe that. Protect us from the lies of the enemy that say, oh, we should just cover our sin or I'm not worthy to come to you. God, replace that with truth. That you are the one we run to and you give us freedom, deliverance. You give us you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel like in this context, we need to respond. And there's a couple of ways I want to invite us to do this. One is if you're not a Christian, if you come in here, you have no idea what would happen if you died today. Make today the day that you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Make him the leader, the savior, the Lord of your life. There's a little booklet in the seat in front of you and you can pull that out and you can simply read what it means to place your faith in Jesus. Or after the service, come up to one of us here at the prayer stations and Say, I want to become a Christian. Today, that could be your response, your next step. For others, as Tim mentioned earlier, you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus. And Alpha needs to be a place that you can explore that in. And this Wednesday would be a perfect place for you to jump into that. Or maybe you're at a place where you feel stuck in the cycle of sin. Uh, right when you crawl up, you just feel like you fall down again. And you just need to go and run to Jesus and be with other people that will encourage you along the journey. And today, even as we mentioned earlier, there's a lunch, no questions asked. You can come just check out, celebrate recovery, and come this Wednesday. This could be a great next step based on Judges 4 and 5. And then for all of us in this moment, I want us to respond through communion. Again, this Isaiah passage says that Christ was pierced for our transgressions. And in this moment, we want to remember that. Humbly receiving that Jesus has done this for us. It is finished. So let me pray and invite our worship to begin. Hold the elements as they're passed to you and we'll take them in a moment. Father, I thank you that we can remember as a gathering here today of what exactly you've done on the cross. God, may this be meaningful. May it speak to us in profound ways. In Christ's name, amen.